Hi, I'm Stuart Legere, Associate Artistic Director of Zupa. Welcome to Carry the Spark, Reflections on the Movement, a limited podcast series highlighting fascinating conversations with leading climate activists on the state of the climate crisis, the need for cautious optimism, and reflections on 50 years of the Ecology Action Centre. For more information, visit zupa.works or ecologyaction.ca. Here we go. All of us are here because we're driven by this passionate desire to change things for the better. But change is often really incremental. It can be really slow. And some of us have been doing this for a really long time. And some of us have been doing this for not as long a time. So I would love to have a conversation with you guys about what it's like to be in this movement, uh, to acknowledge that it's an intergenerational fight that we're up against really big forces and big money that are working hard to uh, to entrench the status quo. Um, and how do we keep building and sustaining this movement for progressive change? It always um, gives me pause to think about terminology because Sometimes, um, as Kathy Martin would say, um, from her perspective, the settlers come in and um, claim terminology and exactly what it is that um, what it is that we're doing when people since time immemorial uh, could be doing the same thing, but not call it what those who come um, later call it. So I'll, I'll talk specifically about the, um, the African, in particular, the African Nova Scotia communities and my growing up in Troyal, Nova Scotia. And the Black communities were physically situated always on the end of the periphery of the, of the town. And we dealt constantly with um, issues that we would talk about now in terms of being environmental issues. Um, I, in fact, I physically am sitting in this flood prone area um, where the black community, which is now very much gentrified, uh, stands. So we constantly had to deal with um, flooding and uh, people um, not having all the resources such as insurances, not able to get insurances, not having the resources to build in the way that would mitigate um, this, what we now know as environmental uh, racism. And these things, well, we didn't talk about um, it in terms of an environmental movement. We talked about in terms of of um, health and safety and survival um, was what we, we referred to. So later it became environmental kind of issues. We've always had a connection to nature and the need for us to respect um, uh, uh, nature. And that in doing that, that we coexist uh, with nature. 
marginalized communities who experience the results of, of environmental uh, degradation um, often much more acutely than, than the rest of us do. And when Ecology Action Center started, we were aware of Boat Harbor. It had only just started a few years before EAC got started. And we, to my great regret, couldn't figure out a way to, or didn't figure out a way to get involved with that. And I'm very, very happy that this has been, uh, at least it's on the road to being resolved um, now. Um, and I regret that we didn't do anything about that in the early days, because it was something we were aware of. I've really witnessed in the span of my career, which is about 15 years now, um, a, a, a tremendous shift toward environmental justice, climate justice, really being at the heart of our organizing, as opposed to some of this um, somewhat often technocratic uh, environmentalism that has characterized uh, the movement in the past. And are we learning from some of the past mistakes of the environmental movement? Are we figuring out how to better reflect the, the diversity and the lived conditions of the communities that we work with and in, um, in our work to make a progressive environmental change? I often have trouble, I always have, saying, I'm an environmentalist or I work for an environmental organization even. And I find that a really interesting thing because I've always worked with people and communities. And I think that this idea that Lynn is talking about around who owns the terminology and how did it get named that? And it, it's super important to think about and connects to the question you were just saying, because I just feel like it starts to disconnect it from everything else and mostly from, you know, we do it inside the movement and then we also from outside the movement, it's like this, this separation that we struggle with as to what environment means and, and what it means to, to, to work on environmental issues. And I, I think about it a lot because I think that we need to be connecting you know, there is something that's been flowing more and more, I think, through the movement to a certain extent, which is um, the understanding that everything is connected. But you do see it a lot from a science technocratic point of view of like an ecosystem connection type of thing. And I love to learn from ecosystems in terms of activism. But therefore, like we need to be connecting with people and communities to build the size and type of movement that we need to actually shift the systems of power that are so huge that we're all arrayed to be working towards. And so I just think about that a lot. If we're kind of siloing ourselves in a sense or are siloed by the language we use, how do we connect across to workers, um, to caring people who are in the caring industry? So all of these folks who actually hold power in our systems, who we have to like start building and connecting with across the movements. Um, so I think, language plays a role in that in how we conceptualize ourselves and how are we going to make these movements, you know, um, bringing in these, I think you're right that environmental justice has become more of a, more talked about in the movements and everything, but it still seems to be very from the margins. And in my opinion, like, I feel that we are going to need to have more mainstream, massive social movement <laughs> to really make the shifts that we need. And so how do we take that amazing work that's happening in the margins, right, and really build and connect it um, to, to across that movement? The only way that we can move forward effectively is to really get everyone included and get everyone on the same page and as many people as possible wanting to make change 
I mean, we all know that it's pretty obvious, but so by, um, by making ourselves more open and less titled and, and more um, included in everyday living and, you know, by making ourselves more normalized, I guess, then we, um, we decriminalize ourselves and devillainize ourselves for anybody who is afraid because it is normal to be afraid of thinking about the environment even. And I think a lot of people who, who, um, who kind of go against the environmental activists and whatnot, they are actually just afraid because they don't want to think about it because as soon as they start to accept that it's true, then it's terrifying to think about. And I struggle with that all the time. Sometimes I'll, I'll go a whole week without thinking about the environment and I'll think, why would I do that? And then I remember that it's because it's terrifying to think about it and it stresses me out a lot. And I think we have to acknowledge that and we have to sort of allow people to be afraid of it without going against it all the time. So, yeah, I think that if we stop putting ourselves with these titles and um, open up just the language around activism and environmentalism, then that will really help to expand our horizons. What I've been working on a lot in the last few years is um, supporting the women that are fighting against the Alton Gas Project. And it's been an absolutely unbelievable learning journey for me. Like I I see the world differently now, having been engaged in that work for so long and being able to spend so much time with elders and grandmothers and learning about a different way of kind of connecting to the earth. And one thing I've really learned there is that all of the work, it always starts with caring. And the caring is kind of twofold about caring for each other and also caring for the the place and the world of the earth. Um, that's kind of at the center of that resistance to stop that natural gas project. And so I think where so many people like Willow was just saying, feel excluded from the movement and yeah, I mean, how much do I need to say about exclusion? People feel excluded. And so I think like if we're trying to connect between like environment and labor and like environment and other issues, I think it sounds in some way like simple and glib and in other ways it's like profoundly difficult to do. Um, is to really just care first about people and care about building the relationships with people in different movements so that we can come to a place of like understanding each other all as humans who are trying to find our way here on this planet we live on together and then find um, the common issues or common things that we want to create together. And I think if you can't make time for care and, and like really value that as part of the work of this movement of the movements, then I think we won't get very far. And it probably took me about five years to really come around to that idea. So I don't want to make it sound too simple. Like, I don't think it's something that we're taught as a society. And certainly as a white person, I don't think that care is kind of in our societal education. And so um, I, I really think that's an important ingredient is, is care for people on the planet together. Does the environmental movement really want to um, be inclusive? Does it really want that? Or does it want to be um, elitist? And um, I'll give you an example of a few, not so many years ago, I attended an environmental uh, event. People would have 
probably heard this before. I won't make it the big story, but it was um, at uh, Dalhousie University, and the topic was environmental racism. And I remember going to that event and being shocked. The room had hundreds of people, hundreds of young people, youth. I'd never seen anything like it before when it came to, for example, issues of racism, anti-racism. And I had to think, I've been at this a very long time, organizing around all these different issues. What are all these white people doing in this room? <laughs> with uh, 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 at Dalhousie and young people. But I knew that the operative word was environment. It wasn't racism, even though it was environmental racism, the word was environment, which I learned to throughout the evening. And it was really great to um, have, uh, have people um, there engaging on the topic. In fact, there were very few people of uh, color or indigenous people at the event. It was mostly all white people talking about environmental racism. Words mean things. There is power in naming things and um, the power in naming things often comes with resources. So are we naming the things that communities need to be working on for their own survival? Are we ensuring that as we name struggles, we are um, doing that in a way that directs resources and power to the people who need to be fighting that struggle on the front lines. Um, this work can be scary and really stressful and it's important for us to be humans in this work, acknowledge that and come at this work with care and compassion. There is this risk of environmental elitism uh, that we really need to be countering by talking about the interconnectedness of different struggles and the need for structural change. Um, and finally, we often operate within the scarcity mindset that I think can uh, sometimes hinder us from feeling like we have the capacity and the time to invest in that relationship building that really builds that community-based action that I think a lot of us feel is necessary. And so how do we work out of that scarcity mindset? There has to be a social justice element to this. And it turned out EAC had been involved with the Affordable Energy Coalition for a number of years. So I started, uh, but that has sort of fallen away. So I started getting involved in that. And, and Lynn actually helped me uh, find someone to participate in that group, um, Miranda Kane from North Preston. And, and we've discovered through that connection that uh, some of the renewable programs are not accessible to people in the African Nova Scotian community because of the land title issue. So this is sort of a very small example of where some things that we're already working on can overlap with some of the concerns and interests of people in the African Nova Scotian community. And, uh, and, and you can sort of work at sort of an intersectional thing where you can work at both um, you know, the efficiency environmental element, but also the social justice element that includes low-income people and people in, in African Nova Scotian communities. So we're, we're trying to work with some of those communities to design a program and, and advocate for a program that would make sure that they're included. Oh, those Mi'kmaq are at it again. That's all we hear. Why can't they just be happy with what they've got? They've got everything. <laughs> well. 
we had everything and it was all taken away and we were put into little specks of earth. So, you know, history has to be known in order to understand why there is environmental racism and the truth has to be told about everything that has happened to those that are marginalized. Those stories need to come out and maybe we can gain a little more ground when uh, all kinds of issues rise. The recent issues going on down in Sonyville with the fishermen and fisherwoman, that's racism. And it's saying that we don't deserve the resources that we took care of for 14,000 years. We don't deserve them. It's not, they're not ours and we don't go around saying they're ours. Betty Peterson was right. She had raging grannies of a different generation. Women who were, you would not imagine them being out in some G7 summit singing, you know, protest songs, but it was intergenerational. And they they were elders. They're not Mi'kmaq elders. They were elders saying, come on, listen to us. And I think the intergenerational situation needs some help. Money and corporate greed and politics are, I feel, the biggest challenge in terms of environmental racism. We have Indigenous peoples all over the world fighting to stop mining and to stop gold mining and all kinds of mining that are destroying their water. And we should care about that. And we should be appalled that people like Berta Caceres was murdered for trying to protect water. Like what's with that? And why aren't we able to, to motivate people to say that's wrong? Yeah. There's wrong things that we need to stop from happening. Ego, 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 Some amazing work on environmental racism spreading right out of Nova Scotia has made it to the federal level in Canada. And we have seen a private members bill to address environmental racism past second reading and go to the committee in the house recently, Bill C-230. It still has a long way to go before it becomes the law of the land, but it is, I think, really game-changing to see that conversation actually starting to unfold in our, gov- our federal government houses. I think that what's coming and what we're all going to inevitably start realizing now, and I hope that most of us have sort of realized, is that our um, unified sort of fight or message, I guess, is that um, every issue that we're facing, all of the different issues, um, eventually come down to the fact that we as humanity have been um, challenging the laws of nature for way too many years. And um, we need to really start looking into how we can just stop challenging the laws of nature and and get back to nature and become 
a more sustainable um, species on this earth and live with the rest of the earth because, you know, in the end, we are not going to survive very long if we don't um, really figure out how to be in balance with the earth properly, um, which is going a very long way. And maybe we're not quite ready for that. But um, I think that we, once we start realizing that all of our all of our issues are actually the same issue and just coming out in different forms, then we're going to really start being able to make change um, and just be able to address things for what they are deep down and stop fighting over little issues that conflict because we'll, we know deep down that they are the same problem, that they're from the same problem. Um, yeah, I think that once we start educating and really um, moving our moving our um, or changing our mindset, then we're gonna start seeing a lot bigger change. I think that we shouldn't be afraid to say that capitalism as an economic construct is a massive and fundamental problem that exists and is causing a lot of grief for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It is a multi-headed tetra. And we should not be afraid to name it. And I think a second word that I'll add to what Willow was saying is uh, neoliberalism, which I understand as like a, a way of governing that takes things that should be held in common and by the public and privatizes them for capitalists to get very rich. And I think that's happening across the board. It's been happening for decades and we just shouldn't be afraid. And I think to be afraid and to not use those words specifically is a disservice to all of our movements. <laughs> so I just... Think that we can start there um, as a first step for this second where I'm talking. So capitalism and neoliberalism are really there and they're kind of tools that serve the ongoing colonization of this land, which is, as we've been talking about here and for a long time, pretty fundamental. This sounds depressing when I say it at first, but no one's coming to save us. And this is a phrase that I think of a lot that actually I find really inspiring because it would be really depressing if we were waiting for Ian Rankin to come and save us. That would be a bad time. <laughs> it wouldn't be good. And so for me, that idea that like no one is coming to save us, but we have to like be here for ourselves and for each other and build something for ourselves and for each other. That feels way better to me because it puts, it puts us all in a place where we can take action that actually matters and we don't just get lost in the bureaucracy of the government all the time, but we can actually be working with each other to build the things that we want to see and that we need to live here together. Um, and we can be building those relationships that, you know, create an opportunity for us to be having great visions and then making those visions become real. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I would encourage people not to be waiting for governments or institutions or even organizations like the Council of Canadians where I work or the Ecology Action Center. I don't think we need to wait for those institutions to start creating solutions for us. I think we can all wake up every day and just try to try to do that from where we are. Um, and if that takes you to an organization of the government, that's fantastic, but it doesn't, doesn't have to go that way. So as like an ethos, you know, we gotta, we gotta be the ones making the change for ourselves and for each other. You know, we have seen major change happen when there is a strong radical elements, when we have a huge spectrum of voices out there where we can really push the edges as well. And I, I just think that we have kind of over a few decades been, been quelled too much and we, we need to rise up <laughs> about it really. Like, I think we shouldn't be afraid to be very, very strong again 
and and move forward and make sure that we're not getting diverted to like fight amongst each other, that kind of classic strategy of the powerful. Just recovery movement that I mentioned earlier was a really wonderful attempt at bringing all the groups together and it went uh, so far, but it would be really good to figure out a way to keep that kind of coalition of groups together. And we haven't found that way yet. I think the uh, Extinction Rebellion coming on the scene is the radical, one element of the radical element that Shannon's talking about. And I think that's been a good thing. And I think the best thing, single thing on climate change in the last few years was the student rally two years ago with 10,000 people at it. And if we can figure out a way to do that on a regular basis, we'll be off to the races. I just would like to see if all Canadians could just pull together and ask, and not just ask, but insist that all First Nations in this country get water now, not in an Indian Affairs work plan over the next 10 years. If Canadians have water, it's it's a human right. Who are we if we don't have that water? You know, EAC is just one organization, but it's an opportunity to look back and say, okay, it's been 50 years. Now, where are we going? What are we leaving for the future? What are we, where are we going as a movement? Where are we going as an organization? Where are we going as a, as a broader community? And I think everything, I'm so appreciative and grateful to everything that each of you has brought into this conversation. We are doing some very real um, strategic visioning. It, we're, when we're talking about where are we going, it's not a theoretical question. Um, it's a real question that we're, that we're grappling with and figuring out. And we need all of you, all of you who are here on the panel and also all of you who are here in the room to be with us as we explore those things because all of these issues that we're talking about are, are very, very real. Um, and we need to find a better way and a good way to move forward that's effective and that, that addresses the things that have been brought up in this conversation tonight. So I'm really, really grateful um, to all of you. Thank you.